Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Glad you've joined us. Thanks for letting us be part of your day. Hope you had a good weekend and a safe weekend. Certainly lots going on to sort through here as we kick off a new week. We'll talk weather with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Big tropical storm that will impact uh, several parts of the country with weather this week. We'll talk with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. We're going to talk about some still pretty good U.S. meat export numbers with Dan Hallstrom, president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And a number of things to talk about in a Washington update today with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. But we'll start things off with Sarah Wyant, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. Sarah, good to talk with you. Let's start with the dicamba story. On Friday, I was talking with Jean Payne, president of the Illinois Fertilizer and Chemical Association. She explained how uh, in Illinois, the word was don't use dicamba because of that Ninth Circuit Court ruling. But as I mentioned at the time, and she talked about it as well, this ruling until EPA says something, basically it's it's going to be a mixed bag across the country. And that's what we're seeing state to state, right? Absolutely, Mike. Good morning. This dicamba situation is really a mess. Growers are so unsure of what to do. And especially as you mentioned, Illinois, Minnesota, Nebraska say, no, you can't use the products. Other states like Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, North Dakota, I mean, there's a a number of states who have said, well, until we know anything further from EPA, we're going to say it's business as usual. So farm groups are really looking closely to the Trump administration and the EPA to quickly appeal this ruling out of the Ninth Circuit and to try to provide some clarity on this, especially because you've got several formulations uh, Bayer, BASF, and Corteva are uh, listed in this ruling, but Syngenta's is not. So it's all really confusing for a lot of folks who have already planted based on the understanding that they could use the products. So here we go again. We're waiting on EPA for some kind of action. Absolutely. And uh, hopefully we'll hear something today because, um, you know, there's a lot of. Uh, Folks who are already out there and have made these investments, and and now what do they do? You know, I drove up to Iowa to my farm last week, and uh, crops are really looking good in a lot of parts of the country, Mike. It's really uh, some good-looking beans out there. Mm-hmm. And let's uh, let's talk about this probe into uh, the meatpacking uh, situation and potential or suspected market manipulation we know usda has an inspection going mean, now we know the department of justice is looking into it well you know president trump had said back in may that he was concerned about the disparities between prices that we are seeing at the meat case and the prices that producers receive so it's become clear that um they are looking into Tyson, JBS, Cargill, and National Beef. Um, we're just waiting to see some more details. And, of course, USDA said that they had been doing an investigation of what was happening in the markets after that fire in the Kansas packing facility that we saw last year, and we still haven't seen that report either. So I think there's a lot of interest in getting to the bottom of, of exactly what's happening with these price disparities. Meanwhile, we'll, and we'll talk about this with uh, Senator Grassley a li- little later in the program, 
but we wait to see what the Senate wants to do as far as any more stimulus packages or COVID-related bills. Uh, we already knew that they weren't going to do anything before the 4th of July. Uh, but now with the good jobs report and, and some positive uh, rebound signs for the economy, I just wonder what they'll do or will they try to make it even more targeted than ever? I do believe that the Senate will take some additional action, but they are approaching this, as Lady McConnell has told us and others, in a very deliberate and more targeted fashion, I think, than what the House came up with. I, I really encourage your listeners to uh, tune into our open mic with the Representative Shelley Pingree, who sits on both Ag, the Ag Committee and Appropriations, and she gave a pretty good dis, uh, blow-by-blow of how the House gave this overall laundry list of things that they wanted to do on their wish list, but that they're open to negotiation with the Senate on a smaller list. So how that will shake down, I don't know that we'll know until probably later this month or early into July, but I do think that it will be much more focused and trying to look at where the, the biggest needs are. And certainly on the Senate, they want to be very focused on liability protection. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a very important core element of the Senate package. Tomorrow, I'll be talking with Richard Fordyce, FSA administrator, to get an update on how CFAP sign-up is going. What are you hearing? Well, they've gotten quite a bit of money out the door, but still ways to go yet. And I think it's been just most difficult for those producers who aren't familiar with USDA programs. And, you know, let's face it, there's quite a few of those folks out there. So we were hearing that um, quite a, a several million have gone out, but the, that they still have those who are, you know, trying to make sure that they've got their, their direct deposit set up and all those sorts of things. So it should be interesting to see if they've made additional progress since last week. Yeah, a lot of livestock producers, for instance, not usually in a program like this. So that's it's new to them and some other areas of agriculture that are now eligible. Yes, uh, livestock, specialty crops, folks that, uh, you know, they're not the ones that are already have all their FSA numbers set up and all that sort of thing. So we'll get an update on that coming up uh, tomorrow. Meanwhile, as we look at other aspects of what's going on in agriculture, we are starting to see some signs of rebounding that, uh, you know, helps the oil industry, which also helps the uh, the biofuels industry. Those two don't always get along, obviously, but uh, both are, are going to benefit by the economy getting up and going again and people out moving around. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we're starting to see gas prices tick back up, and that means uh, – People are driving again and, and getting out, and, and uh, certainly ethanol consumption will hopefully start going. We're seeing some more plants come online. I think the other thing that we've been watching closely, Mike, is this new PPP change that uh, the president signed just recently to uh, allow farms and small businesses to have some loan forgiveness. They've now got more time from 8 to 24 weeks, and, and uh, still maybe some more folks that might be interested in participating in that. And by the time the FDA, if they ever do figure out uh, how to let the ethanol industry help more in making hand sanitizers, by the time they get that figured out and allow it, the the, the peak demand may be over for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing that that has taken so long. It just seems uh, counterintuitive to folks who, uh, you know, would just like to make a decision and, and 
to have those folks get approved for that. Yeah, it's one of those things where it would seem common sense would take over at some point, but it uh, it's just remained elusive to get that done. They they take an action, and that doesn't really seem to help much uh, getting that done. Well, Sarah, thanks a lot. Uh, we'll be uh, reading uh, you and your staff's uh, great coverage on ag and agripulse.com. You always do a great job, and thanks a lot. We'll talk again next week, okay? Thank you, Mike. Have a good week. All right, Sarah Wyant, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. Up next, lots of weather to talk about with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Let's talk weather with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Bryce, uh, we've got a big storm, Cristobal, that's uh, impacting the weather for several parts of the country. Well, it certainly is, Mike. Uh, Once that storm made landfall uh, during the last uh, 24 hours, landfall on Sunday along the Louisiana coast, it's been a heavy rainmaker in the deep south, and it's uh, basically just going to move pretty quickly northward right along the Mississippi Valley. So there's going to be a big swath of kind of the western and the central Midwest that has rain of anywhere from an inch to two inches. And uh, there could be some local three-inch amounts. There's there's a lot of uh, flash flood watch uh, bulletins in effect over the Mississippi Valley uh, area. And uh, I don't know if all of those are going to actually verify, but, you know, the conditions are such that there's going to be a pretty wide area that gets uh, this uh, one to two inch rainfall. This uh, storm is going to move pretty quickly and probably faster than the models were looking at back on Friday, uh, likely to move into Wisconsin actually by late Tuesday and then off into Ontario and Quebec. And along with that, there's a pretty strong um, cold frontal boundary uh, along the U.S.-Canadian border today that's bringing some uh, pretty heavy rain into the far northern plains, and uh, that's the, that energy is going to kind of get caught up with all this moisture brought in by the former tropical storm to uh, help to generate that kind of rainfall as well over the western Corn Belt, and so it's uh, quite an event. There's no doubt about it. Some of those areas need some rain. Well, they do. Um, there's uh, parts of uh, Iowa that have turned abnormally dry on the drought monitor, over the last several weeks, uh, parts of Minnesota have as well. And uh, there's been some areas in the Dakotas that have uh, had a, uh, an occurrence of dryness, which is a little bit hard to uh, kind of get uh, your arms around, uh, considering how wet it's been. But uh, there has been a little bit of that to start to show up because we have had a, a drier stretch uh, during this late spring time frame. Uh, so that rainfall is going to be pretty timely. For sure. There is uh, one area that's going to get pretty well left out, and that is the southern plains. Now, um, along with that uh, drier trend in that part of the country, we know that wheat harvest is uh, getting going in Texas and southern Oklahoma. So there's uh, sort of a mixed blessing or a mixed impact from that drier trend in that part of the country with uh, the harvest having very good conditions, but uh, the the uh, drawdown in moisture is going to be pretty notable as well uh, with uh, not only a lot of heat but also some very strong winds drying things out even more. 
What about temperatures across the country? We've had some summer-like weather. Is that going to change with the storms this week? There's going to be a pretty big change uh, over the central U.S. Uh, for sure. And the month of June started out with uh, quite a few stations uh, showing record stretches for uh, temperatures topping the 90-degree mark in early June. And uh, some stations probably set new records, but uh, there's there certainly has been that extensive stretch of this uh, real um, stressful uh, heat category uh, so early in June. But uh, starting later today and then for sure on Tuesday and then moving all the way through the balance of this week, we're going to see temperatures uh, take a real uh, notable change from the uh, you know, the midsummer heat to more late spring, early summer heat. I mean, we're looking at a lot of temperature um, ranges that are going to be in the mid-70s to the low 80s instead of the, you know, the uh, low to mid-90s, uh, like so many places have. And then that milder trend is going to stay with us all the way through next week, uh, particularly over the northern and central parts of the country. So that's going to be a, a big change in terms of the the uh, temperature pattern, and obviously that's going to be uh, less stressful for both crops and livestock. And um, in all likelihood, we could see growing degree day totals uh, really um, almost max out because we know the growing degree day uh, accumulation actually ceases past the mid-80s mark. And so instead of uh, having to uh, just kind of have that stressful heat, uh, we're going to have temperatures uh, maxing out in the low to mid-80s and and uh, offering uh, very good growing conditions. So that's going to last a little while, temperatures being cooler. Yes, it is. Um, you know, and, and I'm not talking about um, a real sharp cool down. After this week, uh, we'll have, you know, that uh, kind of uh, slower progression back to uh, more typical uh, mid-June type temperatures with a lot of values in the low to mid-80s. And um, like I say, that's that's not a bad combination. That's not a bad look uh, when you have those temperatures in, in that ballpark for the uh, middle part of June. And we know that there's been very good uh, progression as far as uh, planting is concerned. And uh, even with replanting that in some ice, or some local areas had to be done, uh, there still is going to be an awful lot of benefit with uh, this type of uh, pattern that we've got coming on. We're talking with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. All right, Bryce, give us a look at the South American weather. Well, the uh, the pattern is still looking pretty dry in central Brazil for harvest, and they're about 2% done with the Safrina corn crop harvest in uh, Brazil at this point. Uh, there's been uh, some indication of lower safrina production out of Brazil for this year. And that's not surprising because uh, we know that in the past uh, several months, actually about the past three months, that uh, the states of Mato Grosso do Sul and Paraná were very dry. And uh, that that is uh, causing a, a, a little bit of a dialing back in that safrina crop total. It still is going to be a big crop and contributing to a large corn crop in Brazil, but it's not going to be quite as over the top as uh, had been thought of. It's uh, very similar in some respect to how the uh, soybean crop performed in Brazil this year. You know, the the crop is a big one, but it had been projected 
to be just, uh, you know, way, way out there in terms of its size. So that's not quite the case, uh, but still a little bit less than, uh, than had been expected out of Brazil for the corn crop this year. All right, let's uh, come back. You have you have been talking about this summer not being uh, a terribly hot, dry one for much of the uh, of the United States, especially in the Midwest. Are you still seeing that? Uh, it, nothing extreme. That's the way things are looking for the Midwest. Now, I'm uh, I'm pretty cautious on how the the uh, southwestern plains and uh, kind of the the southern south central part of the Corn Belt are going to there when we get uh, into the uh, real heart of the summer season because the uh, Pacific Ocean temperatures are showing a move on the on the absolute temperature um, uh, analysis to the uh, cool water phase that that uh, indicates the beginning of possible La Nina conditions out in the equator region of the Pacific and um, if that keeps on uh, in that trend for uh, the balance of this summer, uh, considering how dry things are in the southwestern plains, that uh, could expand eastward pretty quickly, relatively speaking. And so I think that there's going to be a, a, a much bigger call for irrigation in uh, that southwestern plains, uh, south-central plains region uh, than we uh, have seen. Uh, over the past uh, couple seasons, and uh, I, I think that we've already had a pretty big draw uh, in that respect. Now, over the northern plains and then much of the Midwest, Mike, uh, conditions are still looking pretty favorable with near to above normal temperatures and uh, precipitation that is likely to be at least near normal uh, through the uh, balance of this growing season because we still have a, a pretty hefty uh, soil moisture reserve to offer that low-level support to uh, bring in periodic showers when uh, things start to heat up and uh, just kind of serve to put a, a limit on, on the absolute heat that we can see over uh, the uh, north-central part of the country, and I think that that's going to stay with us. All right, Bryce, good to talk with you. Thank you for the update. Lots going on with the weather. We appreciate it. Take care. Great. Yeah, great to be with you, Mike. Thank you. All right, DTN meteorologist, Bryce Anderson. Up next, a Washington update with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. Lots to talk about with the senator. We'll get his thoughts on the dicamba issue, the uh, beef investigation or the cattle market investigation. Get his thoughts on uh, what's going on with some of the other issues in our country as far as calls to defund police departments. And what about the possible uh, another round of assistance from COVID-19. Will the Senate be moving on that anytime soon? And if so, what will they be focused on? We'll talk about that and more with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And we always look forward to our visits with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley here on Adams on Agriculture. Senator, thank you for joining us. Certainly a lot going on. We're going to get into a number of different topics. Uh, let's start with uh, what you're looking at in the Senate as a possible next 
uh, COVID-related assistance package. As you've told us, it would not come until after the 4th of July. How likely do you think it is that you'll do something? And uh, if so, what will you focus on? I think it's likely that we'll do something. I think it will be a lot less than what really a lot less than what Pelosi passed a couple weeks ago in the House. I think that's more of a political document, campaign document, than it's a real serious effort. I believe one thing for sure, if there's going to get a bill through the United States Senate, it's going to have some reform of potential lawsuits against businesses related to COVID that maybe they could be sued for that they might not have anything to do with. Like, for instance, did you get your COVID at the COVID-19 at the workplace, or did you get it in church Sunday? Uh, and there ought to be some uh, reasonable association with the person being sued with the fact that you got COVID. And that might be hard to prove, and people shouldn't be subject to lawsuit and have to defend themselves if it's nothing beyond that. I think there will be some help for state and local governments for lost revenue, but way short of what uh, Pelosi had, a trillion dollars in her bill. You know, we're hearing from Moody that lost revenue might be $350 billion or something, not a trillion like uh, Pelosi put in her bill. Uh, I think that, that the ultimate thing of what we're going to do is related to two things. How much money that states have, have they spent? How much have they actually gotten? So we got a clear picture of that. And secondly, and maybe more importantly to this whole thing, is how fast is the economy turning around? Because if the news Friday of a 2.5 million jobs being called back, as opposed to 9 million loss of jobs, and we're having a V-shaped recovery as opposed to a U-shaped recovery or a W-shaped recovery, uh, that's going to make a big difference of what we do because the economy turning around is going to have a lot to do with, uh, with the amount of money that state and local governments have lost. I you think, think there, will, there will be ag assistance? I think, yeah, I think there will be for depopulation and for a further downturn in the economy on what the $24 billion we put in the first one, and maybe something for ethanol if, if oil is going to get some help. But now maybe with oil coming back and people driving more, maybe we'll be able to open up these uh, uh, plants. And I've always argued uh, we ought to have help with ethanol the extent to which there's help with oil. Uh, there's a there's a relationship between ethanol and oil because every car's got some ethanol in it along with your petroleum products. Uh, there's a, it's a question of equity as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts uh, now with what's going on in the country and the calls and the movement towards defunding police departments? How do you feel about that? Well, I wonder if people are really very realistic when they say that. Are they really thinking that somehow if you don't have police, that you're not going to have vigilantes, you're going to have anybody buying their own guns or defending themselves? Seems like a chaotic situation. 
Now, I can understand where the people that are proposing that are coming from, from this standpoint, that when a police officer murders a black American with a knee on his, on his neck, and you wonder, how could the guy do that? I mean, it's beyond my capability to understand it. He must have terrible hate. He surely had to know that this guy wasn't breathing, I would think. He had plenty of people telling him that. Why it went through with it, I don't know. But to a lot of people in black America, that's chaos. So maybe you can understand why they don't mind the chaos that come if we didn't have a police department. But reality tells me that the majority of the people, in fact, a poll I saw over the weekend, whether it's black, white, Asian, or however you want to divide our country up into, there was overwhelming support for police departments. So I think it's a talking point for them at this point. Maybe uh, maybe they don't realize how unrealistic it is, but we're going to keep peace and order in our community, and it takes police to do that. We're talking with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. The Department of Justice now looking into the livestock marketing issue, an investigation by DOJ. Uh, does this mean that their government is taking this investigation seriously? More seriously than any time that I've ever written a letter to the Justice Department raising questions about whether or not there's price fixing and whether or not that there's this, uh, the antitrust laws are being enforced. Uh, I've, I don't know how many letters I've written in the past uh, couple decades on that subject, and this is the most serious it's been taken. Now, I don't say it's being taken serious because of Chuck Grassley's letter. There's other senators that, since I wrote my letter, have written letters. The president's weighed in on it. But this is the first time that we've seen him go to JBS. Uh, well, let's say maybe 20 years ago there wasn't a JBS uh, butchering in the United States. But JBS and and uh, Tyson's and National, and I guess there's another one, that they've actually gone and are seeking information from the files of the companies. This is the first serious action I've seen along that line. And it follows on what they've done in regard to Pilgrim and some other uh, poultry companies uh, being, uh, uh, being charged with price fixing, I think is what the charge is. So the fact that they're already taking some action against some uh, lesser-known companies and maybe not the big animals like cattle and pigs, but poultry, it's still, you've got a lot of poultry farmers that ought to be uh, applauding that. We've got a court ruling on dicamba, which now leaves us with a mixed mixed bag. Some states allowing its use, some states not. Uh, we're waiting to see some action from EPA. Do you do you want to see them appeal the decision? Yeah, I think if if EPA doesn't appeal it, I think the company's going to appeal it. You're going to have an appeal, and you got to remember this decision came from the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit is probably overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court more than any other circuit and maybe all the other circuits added together because they're so far out in their rulings. They have so many judicial activists that are on that court of appeals. And uh, now this president 
has got a lot more uh, strict constructionists on there, but it's still controlled by liberals. Now, I don't know whether it was liberals or conservatives made this decision. That might be a factor that I ought to take into consideration. But uh, it still is a court that's very activist, very liberal, uh, very willing to overturn uh, decisions uh, or make decisions that are eventually overturned by the Supreme Court. Finally, Senator, your thoughts uh, on ag carbon markets. There's a new bipartisan Senate bill that some farm groups and and environmental groups uh, are looking at and backing that would direct USDA to have a big role in overseeing the operation of these ag carbon markets. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think we got the Commodity Futures Trading Organization that already has the authority to do it. And I don't know that I would would, uh, uh, go beyond what the Commodity Futures Trading Commission can do in that area. But I got to confess to you that I have not read this bill. So maybe I should reserve some judgment until I give it study. But I know that uh, that if we got one organization the opportunity to uh, to rule in that area, I would expect them to do their job under the law. And also, what should seem like an easy fix, but it's not. Why is it FDA making it so hard for ethanol plants to be able to help make hand sanitizers? I don't know. I was disappointed with their ruling in their answer to Joni Ernst's in my letter uh, of about a month ago that they finally got back to, and they cited something going on in Canada, and I'm not sure how that relates to our issue. But uh, uh, I would think that that they would welcome any company that can supply any of this needed project to keep people uh, from uh, accepting the COVID virus and hand sanitizer is a big part of it, and 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 I don't uh, I don't know whether they uh, out they outlaw all ethanol or just eth- ethanols of some variety. I'm not sure that I I've gotten to the bottom of that yet. All right, Senator, we thank you for your time. Well, lots uh, certainly going on in our country today. We'll be watching uh, the action in the Senate, and uh, we appreciate your time for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a voice for American agriculture. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. Up next, still some strong U.S. meat export numbers. We'll go over those numbers with the president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, Dan Hallstrom, next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The April meat export numbers still look pretty good. Here to talk about them is Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, good to talk with you again. Uh, Not record numbers, but still good numbers uh, in most cases, right? That's correct. Yes, good morning, Mike. Um, Exactly right. Uh, Despite the headwinds with uh, COVID-19 uh, around the world, uh, we came in with, with pretty respectable numbers. Pork was up 22% year-on-year. 
uh, led by China and Japan. And beef was down about 6%, but a very, very strong uh, month for Japan. So, uh, yeah, all things considered, I think it was uh, it was pretty good. Be interesting to see what the May numbers will show. Are you expecting much change then? Well, yes, I think that uh, we fully expect that we're going to see a slower rate of growth going into May and June. Uh, April was a slower rate of growth from March, so I think that will uh, continue to be the case uh, as we go into May. I think you'll more it'll, the the supply chain disruptions that happened with uh, packing plants in. Uh, April and early May will be more apparent in the results in, in May, I believe. So, But that being said, we're still very optimistic uh, for the year. Um, I think the last six months of 2020 uh, are stacking up to be, uh, be very positive, um, especially given the fact that we have most of Asia coming out of the COVID-19 impact with food service reopening and the economies going, getting going again. Uh, which matches up well with our supply chain uh, improvements. Japan is really quite a market for our meat right now, isn't it? It really is. I, I tell you what, I think I've said this on your show a couple of times, and um, there is no bigger deal uh, in the beef and pork world, in my opinion, than the Japan-U.S. Ag Agreement, which was implemented January 1. Uh, it's our largest value market. It has been for years. Uh, and, and what we're seeing now is we're on a level playing field, apples to apples in terms of inbound duties for both beef and pork, and you're seeing, you're seeing the results today. I mean, uh, our numbers are up big, but we are also taking increased share from our competitors on both beef and pork. So, yeah, we need to keep this wave going, but uh, it's starting off very nicely. And I think that is an underreported story. I mean, we spend a lot of time uh, talking about and – worrying about the phase one trade deal with China. And obviously that is very, very important. But I think we fail to look at, here's a trade deal that's working, the U.S.-Japan trade deal, and uh, that should be more of a model we can use, I would think, with other countries. Exactly. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and the, and the beauty of it is that uh, it, it's not just one sector that, that's working uh, for the U.S. Uh, beef and pork trade. I mean, uh, You've got the retail sector, which is booming all over the world, but we have the convenience store sector. We, we even have food service, despite the fact that they were shut down for 60 to 100 days, uh, roughly, uh, earlier in the spring. Uh, we saw a lot of good stories coming out of food service, even incrementally. So it's really one of those situations where uh, if we're on a level playing field, we can compete with anybody. And, and our quality, high-quality beef and pork is really uh, – is really showing itself now in, in terms of increased business. Well, I mentioned China. What is the latest there as far as moving meat into into China? Well, the, the China Phase One agreement, to your point, is important as well. Um, you know, and we've seen some significant uh, business there, uh, especially on pork. Uh, you know, we we um, had 112,000 tons exported in the month of April which is just slightly below the pace uh, from the first quarter. Uh, although the weekly data would tell you that the pace is slowing down going into May, um, which is probably more just of a seasonal variation in price, et cetera, than anything else. I think the demand will remain good for China on pork throughout the rest of the year, although it might slow down a bit in the last part of the second quarter here. 
uh, and it's also a good, uh, it's been a good thing for beef as well. Keep in mind, uh, the beef phase one portion of the agreement was not implemented until March. So April is the first time that we've really seen any impact in the stats for beef. And uh, our volume doubled year on year. Still, still a relatively small number, but we were about 1,300 tons for the month of uh, April, which is double where we were at a year ago. So um, it'll take a little bit of time to ramp up, but, but the, the phase one China deal on beef was phenomenal in terms of increased access, uh, you know, more eligibility for plants and product scope. So, so yes, very important for the industry as well with China. As we still try to work through the challenges in our meatpacking system here in this country from COVID-19, what are we seeing around the world as far as our ability to actually physically move product? Well, the, the infrastructure, the logistics and infrastructure, uh, you know, it ebbs and flows normally. Um, but for the most part, you know, there's been a few issues in a few places over the last three or four months uh, there was a backup in the Philippines and Manila for a while, but um, most, for the most part, very temporary. And uh, I would say that you know you could pretty much uh, assume that logistics uh, are moving normal or, or close to normal almost all over the world. And uh, um, you know that's that's a testament to the efficiency of our logistics globally. Now, I'm not saying it's not containers can't be tight in certain areas. But that's a normal course of business, and, and I think for the most part, exporters are working through it and, uh, and and getting meat where it needs to go. So you're still optimistic it's going to be a, overall a very strong year here in 2020 for meat exports? Yeah, I think, I think the dynamics, if you get back to the basics, which to me is supply and demand, uh, as we come out of, you know, I'm not, I'm not oblivious to the fact that COVID-19 has been a massive impact. It has. But the reality is that uh, people will, will continue to eat our proteins. You know, beef and pork are still highly demanded around the world like they are in the U.S. And, uh, and, and, and we're set up well on a supply basis because you've got shortages due to ASF in China still. So I think we're well positioned for the year. All right, Dan, always good to talk with you. Thank you for the update. Thank you, Mike. Much appreciated. Take care. Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. That wraps it up for today. Thank you for joining us. Stay safe, everyone. Be sure to join us again tomorrow right here on AOA.